Thank you, choir and praise team. I appreciate Jerry filling in again for Herman today and appreciate again all the hard work of our choir and orchestra praise team and all the folks who gave us a great season of Christmas. We still have a lot of folks, I'm sure, on the road. And just pray for folks' safety and check on people in your classes. Make sure we you know, have people sick or in the hospital. We count on you to help us keep up with our folks, particularly in the holidays as well. Entitled the message today, New Year, uh, Ancient Framework, and we'll be looking in Paul's letter to uh, the Thessalonians, his second letter. And so if you want to open your Bibles there, we'll come back to that text in just a few moments. You know, celebrating the first day of a new year is, a, is an ancient practice, and it's done all over the world. As you saw yesterday, you know, from the Far East, they reached the new year before we did, and so about uh, early in the day yesterday, the first celebrations took place uh, in Hong Kong. We saw some of those on television. Although for Christians, it was historically impregnated with Christian rather than secular meaning. But according to some sources, the ancient Babylonians were the first people known to make New Year's resolutions a few thousand years ago. They were also the first to hold celebrations in honor of the New Year, although their New Year began in March rather than what you and I know as January, corresponded to the planting of their crops. And so it was tied in, obviously, with fertility rites to the gods and the coming of the new season of growing, and so it was part of a 12-day religious festival, and in this festival they either crowned a new king or they reaffirmed their loyalty to their current king. It's also said that they made promises to their gods and pledged to pay their debts and to return objects they had borrowed. And by the way, some of you have some of my books, and uh, (laughs) I'm just joking. But they believed that if they kept their word to do these things, the gods would bless them. The crops would be good, and so it would be a good year. As history progressed, the Romans followed a similar practice. Julius Caesar was a reform-minded emperor, and so under him, January 1st was established on the calendar as the beginning of the new year around 46 B.C., and the month was named Janus. You and I call it January. It was named Janus in honor of the god Janus, which was a two-faced god. There Janus is. And they believed Janus' spirit inhabited arches and doorways. Remember, there are a lot of arches in ancient Rome. And so with the two faces, Janus symbolically looked backwards into the previous year, and he looked forward into the coming year. And the Romans offered sacrifices to Janus and made promises toward good conduct to this God in the coming year. Now, in Christian tradition, obviously, we don't want to be identifying ourselves with pagan practices. And so, as Christians have done throughout history, we'll take pagan things and impregnate them with Christian meaning. So, originally, December 25th was obviously not the day on which Jesus was born literally on this planet It was a different time of the year most likely, but that's when it's celebrated because it took over a a pagan festival and became marked and substituted with the birth of Jesus. And so in relationship to the new year, in 1740, John Wesley, in whom the Methodist movement finds its origins, he developed what was known as a covenant renewal service. And these were held most commonly on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. 
And uh, sometimes in our churches, we have called them in the past watch night services when they were held on New Year's Eve. Anybody ever been to a watch night service? Some of you have. And so at a watch night service, you, you would go and scriptures would be read. You would have prayers. You would sing hymns. If you were Baptist, you would eat somewhere along the way. And so these were alternative meetings in relationship to the secular revelry that surrounded New Year's celebrations. It was a way to keep people from being enticed to going to pagan and secular uh, celebrations. And in our country, uh, still the idea of a watch night service is stronger in the black church tradition, which I don't even like that terminology of black and white churches. I think that wall should be totally eradicated. But nevertheless, Still in those traditions, you still see more of the watch night services than you do in our tradition, but there used to be more of it that we would have. But thinking about the new year, while focusing, um, uh, while often focusing on us and our efforts, uh, really for Christians, the new year should be a time of thinking about God's grace and His eternal unfolding plan, as opposed to how the world looks at the transition of time. That's why I read Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever for our scriptural call to worship. There is in the Bible some foundation for us to know that the early believers did think about things in terms of years. They ordered time. They marked time. They lived in their culture. And if you turn to the book of James chapter 4, written by Jesus' half-brother, the son of Joseph and Mary, James talks about the idea of the year and being marked in a particular way, but he, he, in a sense, reprimands either the Christians that he's writing to or the non-Christians who are kind of affiliating with the Christian community, the business people, but most likely he was writing to Christian Jews who were often invited, Jews were, to new cities to go and live and to try to help them make them prosperous. And so in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go on to this city or that city, spend a what? Year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that as it is your boast and your arrogance, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. But we do see here the idea of a year marked out that they were thinking about, but here it is looked at in the idea that you don't be like the pagans and just live your life unreflectively, not thinking about the will of God in your life. So there's warning to not live like a pagan here. So as we come into this year, 2017, As we think about distinguishing ourselves from the Babylonians who offered offerings to their gods, as many still do today, or as the Romans did to Janus, or as happened all over the planet yesterday in different cultures around the world where there was a religious component to the new year, what should mark us? How should we approach this differently? What should be the framework in how we mark time as Christians. Well, I believe we can find such a framework tucked away in that small letter I mentioned called Second Thessalonians. And so I invite you to look at it with me this morning and let this passage be one that guides us every day of the year. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, chapter uh, 2 verse 13 through 17. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. Paul writes and says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, 
because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings or the traditions we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Second Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul and was penned and delivered to the church in that city. It's a city that today is still there under a different name. And it's uh, on the, uh, what would be the nation of Greece. It's where you would find Thessalonica. Now, obviously, we're reading 2 Thessalonians. Um, past election cycle might have been called 2 Thessalonians. That's what the British would call it. But for us, it's 2 Thessalonians. It followed, scholars believe, closely on the heels of 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote one and then the other. And in this letter, Paul is writing to assuage some fears, to deal with some fears that they were having in their church, fears that had arisen over the second coming of Jesus. And this brief letter focuses centrally on eschatology, the end times, the second coming of Jesus, and the unfolding of things. Almost 40% of the letter deals with that issue. It seems that they have received a message from some source telling them that Christ has already returned. And so, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, he says, he's encouraging them not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. So Paul says it's not from us, but there's allegedly some teaching coming, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. So they were upset by that. So it would be like some of you today who believe in the rapture of the church before the tribulation, that you miss the rapture kind of thing. And that might freak some of you out if you think that, you know, you, you missed it. Jesus has come, and I missed it. Well, that's what was going on here in this particular church. Now, that may be rooted in what he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, if you would go back there. That perhaps someone exploited what Paul had said or misrepresented Paul before them. Because he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he says, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of, of strong opposition. And uh, he is, in this letter, um, talking to them about uh, the, the, the day of the Lord that may come in the future. And it seems like he appeals to the idea that it could be uh, something that, that is coming soon. And so, they're afraid that it's going to pass in that particular way. But what's happened in light of the fact that they're afraid that Christ may have come and they have missed it, if you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 6 and 7, he says to them, what's happening? Some of them think that they missed it. They're worried about it. On the other hand, they become lazy in their lives. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Down in verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. 
such people, we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And then he says, as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So the point here is that uh, they have thought, some of them, that they have missed it, perhaps some misconstruing of what Paul has said in 1 Thessalonians, and some of them have quit working. They've quit carrying out their lives as Christians as they ought to be. So that's what Paul's dealing with. And he spends quite a bit of time in 2 Thessalonians helping them understand that the day of the Lord has not come. Jesus has not come. You have not missed it. And he teaches them that by talking about this fact. Before Jesus comes back, something else has to happen. And he deals with that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verses 1 through 12. I don't have time to read all of it. But he says, remember not to come easily alarmed. He says, don't let anybody deceive you in verse 3. For that day, he says, will not come until the what? Rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul says Christ is not going to come back until there's a rebellion of humanity against the Lord. And then the Antichrist is going to be revealed. That has not taken place. And so he says... Don't worry about whether or not Jesus has come back and that you have missed it. You have not. None of this has happened. Yet in this, as he's telling them this and trying to comfort them, we're reminded that the Christian view of this world is very realistic. One, as Christians, we come to realize as we're walking on this planet that our journey will be in the minority. If you haven't figured that out yet, you should. If you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, you're going to be walking in the minority. Jesus said that himself, if you recall, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, in uh, verse 14. Jesus said this. He says that uh, the small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So we're going to be the minority. And secondly, this world is not heading toward a utopia created by human effort. Rather, this world, as we enter into this year, as it is every day, is headed toward a time of greater rebellion against God, a greater time ultimately of lawlessness when God removes His restraining hand, and a time of concentrated evil in the coming of the Antichrist to lead in rebellion against the Lord. Greater, more concentrated, more powerful expressions of evil. That does not mean, however, that Christians should live depressed lives or that we're to be pessimists, but rather while the world makes resolutions in the flesh and they come to live with disappointments in this broken world and often disillusionment, Paul is going to teach them that in light of the world in which you live, in which you're a minority, and in light of the world in which you live, in which whatever year you're going into, ultimately the world is going to become more rebellious, more evil. It is not getting better on this planet ultimately. That you Christians should still be people who have great optimism. You should not be disillusioned. You have justified optimism. And you can live a consistent life even in the midst of a broken world and be different than your neighbors around you. And that's what he's really focusing upon. And that's his point beginning in verse 13. So you notice what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. He's just told him about Christ has not come. He won't come until the rebellion takes place. The Antichrist is revealed, so the world is not getting better and better. You're a minority of people in the great city of Thessalonica. But here's what you need to do in your world. 
They may be marking a new year, offering sacrifices to Janus, a false god. He says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. And then he begins to tell them about themselves, about their status, their standing. And then he tells them how to live in light of that. So what does he say to us then? What is the framework he gives to us by which we can live every day of the year and live differently than the world around us? And that's what I want you to see this morning. There are three things that I want you to uh, look at with me. First of all, Paul reminds them that unlike the world with its unsurety about the gods, about the future, the world makes pledges to reform resolutions. The world and the religious connection of New Year offers still today gifts to the gods to try to placate or buy off the deities. Paul says you Christians can live distinctly from that with quiet peace and confidence because of the wonder of your salvation. And so as we enter into the new year, our framework should be that every day of my life, I'm a person, no matter what's happening in this world, that I live within the wonder of my salvation. You'll notice in verses 13 and 14, we have this awesome summary of the application of the gospel to our particular lives. And I I want you to look at it with me closely Because I think sometimes in these letters, these brief letters, we read through them quickly, and there's so much here, and I don't have time to dig into all of it with you, but I want you to just look at verse 13 and 14. I want you to read these out loud with me, would you? If you have your Bible, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to his, this through our gospel and that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had come to their city. He planted this church and he had proclaimed the gospel, the good news about God and his grace, the forgiveness is in Jesus, the gift of eternal life. The Spirit of God had worked in their hearts And they had responded freely and been saved, and this church had been birthed. Now, all that took place in their lives was something that was initiated by God, guaranteed by God. They had simply received it by faith. And now that they had received that by faith, this message of the gospel, they've trusted in Jesus. Paul wants them to understand and wants us to understand that you and I now have, if we're Christians, we have peace with God. Not just a sense of peace in our hearts. We have declared peace with God. We're on peace terms with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, he talks about our peace with the Lord. He tells us to rejoice in it. In Romans 5 verse 1, what a great verse that you should remember in the Bible. Where he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we placed our trust in Jesus. We have been made just with God. That is, we are righteous before God. We are not guilty of our sin. He says we've been justified through faith. He says we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, in these verses we've read, there's so many wonderful words here that let you know what God's already done in your life and my life, even before we become Christians. You'll notice, he says here, that in this passage, he says that God chose you as first fruits. God chose you as first fruits to be saved. You see the word chosen. That's the word election. That's in our Baptist faith and message. 
election, however you want to slice it, whether you're a Methodist who believes that before anything was ever created, God saw he was going to make everything, he was going to make you, and he was going to look at your choice in time, and if, depending upon if you received Jesus as your Savior, responded positively, then you are elect at that point as one of his children to be saved, or whether or not you want to believe it as a Calvinist, and many Baptists, including our own Baptist faith and messages in this side of the house, where that God said, I'm going to choose to create, and I'm going to permit the fall. Nobody would come to me left to themselves in their sin, but I am going to provide my son to die for them, to be buried and to rise again. I'm going to call them by my spirit, and they will freely respond, but I set my heart upon you in eternity. As with Jeremiah Chapter 1, verse 5, where he says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and set you apart to be a prophet unto God. Whichever way, whichever side of the house you come down on theologically as a Christian, and you may not even be thinking at that level, but some of you are, so that's why I'm putting it this way. God made that choice for us before we ever came to be. Election is done in eternity before anything was ever created on this planet. And so he says here that God chose you to be saved. Then Christ came. He took on flesh. He lived sinlessly. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. And then the gospel about that is proclaimed. You notice he says he called you now to to trust in this. What the Spirit does, he convicts you. And God calls you to this, what? To salvation through the what? The gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message is preached, the Spirit works in hearts and minds. If you're a Christian, you know that time when the Spirit of God began to work in your heart to show you that you were lost, that you needed a Savior, that you needed to be forgiven. He showed you that in your mind, in your heart. He drew you to Jesus Christ. You did not initiate coming to Jesus on your own. He began to show you your need of a Savior as you heard the gospel, and then you responded freely your own free choice, free um, decision that you made, you responded to Christ as your Lord and your Savior, as a free moral agent, and you received the gift of eternal life. And when you've done that, then you have peace with God. And so the idea, here's what I want you to see. As opposed to people who are offering sacrifices to Janus or the Babylonians or those who in India yesterday offered sacrifices to their gods, Or in other parts of the world. Or even in America where people still sometimes offer sacrifices to gods. Or they make resolutions in America with the influence here where people worship themselves to a great degree. The gospel distinction in that is that we don't live in that way. We don't have to perform to be accepted. Nothing is ever going to change my standing with God Now that I've trusted Christ, he set his heart on me in eternity past. He sent his son to die for me in time. He sent somebody to proclaim the gospel to me. The Spirit showed me my need of a Savior. God's doing all of that. I respond and receive that. And my standing with God is I now have peace with God. And nothing, nothing that I can do or you can do, or anybody can do, is ever going to change my standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to think about performing for my God. I do want to serve Him and obey Him, but I don't have to think about it in the terms that I'm trying to do this, to placate Him, to buy Him off, to stay in His good graces. I am in His grace that's been given to me as a gift. 
No matter what happens in this world, nothing will ever change that. Jesus put it this way in John 10, verses 27 through 30, about our security that we have in him. Such a wonderful, wonderful promise we have in John chapter 10, in verses 27 through 30, where Jesus said this. John 10, 27. Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. Isn't it wonderful for Jesus to say, I know them? He knows you. And he knows me. I know them. And they follow me. I give them. I give, do you see that? I, what? I give them. It's not them doing something for me. I give them. It's a gift. I give them what? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, notice that the Father gave us to the Son. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen, and, and that is why, and often I hear Christians using some of the words in our culture that we should not be using that grow out of paganism. Or other worldviews, I hear people using words in our culture, sometimes even believers like, like the word karma. Now, karma is a pagan word born out of a pagan worldview. Or the word fate. But karma carries with it the idea, the connotation of those same pagan religions out of which the idea comes. That, that I perform to avoid pain. I pay to find favor. I receive retribution when I don't perform. And in that worldview, it carries over to the next life in relationship to the life form that you are. Whether you move up the scale or down the scale. But you see, the gospel, the wonder of our salvation is that we have a gift. Do you understand? A new standing, a new eternal, unalterable relationship with our Trinitarian God who has brought us into his family. And you'll notice back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, what does it say that he is going to do? What he's going to share with us? Notice verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel that you might, notice what it says, might what? Share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. All that Jesus has, he's going to share with me, but I share in the glory of Jesus. I can't even get my mind around that. That I... Share as a joint heir, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That all he has, he will share with me. I share in the glory of Jesus Christ. So as you enter into 2017 and you think about your life, while the world's living out its framework of trying to make resolutions to self or offerings to God's or trying to do self-reform or thinking I've got to do this to perform and stay in God's good graces, the gospel is so distinct to say God has acted for you. You simply must respond and believe and trust and place your trust in him. And the central metaphor I think we need to employ here today, there are a lot of metaphors in the New Testament about salvation, but I think the central one we need to think about today is the idea of adoption. You know, I've watched this past year some families adopt children, some from other parts of the country. Some people in our church have relatives who have adopted children from other parts of the world. And you think about when they're going through this process of adoption, they, they set their heart on a child, right? They see this child and they say, this is going to be my child. 
And then there's that time of travel where, where you go and, and you first call their name. And they first respond to you. And that bond begins to form and you take them into your family. And you're not ever going to let them go, are you? Because they become a part of your family. They take on your last name. They become legally tied to you in that way. In a way that is so much far superlative, superior to that, God has set his heart on us to adopt us as his children. And so I don't enter into 2017 like a pagan, thinking that I've got to do all these things to stay in God's good graces. I praise a God who has done all things for me to bring me into his good grace. And he's given it to me as a gift And if you can begin to look at life in that way, it'll change everything about how you think about life. And if you're not thinking in those terms, in the grace of God, you're not thinking Christianly. And so Paul wants them here to understand he thanks God for them being his brothers and sisters. They've become part of his family, loved by the Lord. God chose them. Through the Spirit, he worked in them to set them apart, sanctified as they believed in the truth. They responded. He called you, and they responded to that gospel that they might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly, as you think about this framework he's given us for everyday living, to guide us every day of the year, Paul next says to them, you should also grow in your understanding of the Lord's promises. Now that you have this deep assurance of salvation, of peace with God, You need to grow in your understanding of the promises God has for you in this new relationship. You'll notice in verse 15, he says to them, So then, brothers and sisters, so he's building upon what he's just said, so this is the the consequence. So then, verse 15, brothers and sisters, read the rest of this one with me, would you? Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. You know, while the world has historically made resolutions to their gods, which is often now themselves, and they have sought to placate their gods through their resolutions or their offerings, we are told again as believers to stand firm in what God has given to us. Notice verse 15 again. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings. What are the teachings? Telling us what God's given to us, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, Why does Paul put it in these terms? Well, during this time, the New Testament is under construction, so to speak. All the New Testament has not been written yet. Part of it's been written here. So some books are written, some letters are written, some are not. First Thessalonians is already written, right? It's already been read to this church. Perhaps some of the Gospels have been written. But a lot of the truth is still oral through the apostles handed down from Jesus. And so if you look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, a verse we often read when we come to share in the Lord's Supper, you can see how this is working before, before the canon, the, the full New Testament, put together the Old Testament, is finally formed. And by the way, we're going to be spending some time this spring looking at that. Why do you... And we accept the 27 books of the New Testament. How did the Bible come to be put together? How should we use the Bible, interpret the Bible? 
And I'll tell you more about why I'm going to do that in the days ahead. But back to the sermon. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the what? Lord, what I also passed on to you. And then he talks about the Lord's Supper when it's established. So the idea is that the truth is being passed down from the life of the early church, from the mouth of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. And so everything's being put together. And so when you go back to that passage in 2 Thessalonians where he says that, uh, that we're to hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Some of your translations may have the word traditions. For us, this equals the Scripture, the New Testament. The traditions of the apostles will become our New Testament. And so if you go over to 2 Peter, just to point this out to you in case you're wondering how this fits together. Just let me take a moment to show you. In 2 Peter, in chapter 3, in verses 15 and 16, Peter alludes to Paul's writings. So he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience, 2 Peter 3, 15, means salvation just as our dear brother Paul, so there's Paul who wrote much of our New Testament, also wrote to you the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, the Thessalonian letter we're reading was one of those letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. And I want you to look at that next phrase. As they what do the what other scriptures. So here Paul's writings are already in the life of the early church being put on the level of the other scriptures to their own destruction. And in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, I'm not going to read that, but if you can go back and read it, he talks about that prophetic message coming through the movement of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the men that God used to write the New Testament. And so when we go back to that passage in Thessalonians, where he says, my brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to your Bible, is what you could put there. Are you with me? Hold fast to the Scripture." that's been passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Now, for us, it's all written down. It's codified. And so he's telling them to hold fast to that. What is he saying? I think the the idea here, the tenor of what Paul is saying, is the same thing that Peter says, if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 through 12. I know I'm running around in your Bible this morning. I know you were up late last night, but that's your problem. Go to bed. I'm kidding. No, it was New Year's, a couple of ball games. There'll be another one coming up in a few days. I know y'all, some of y'all are worried about that. But 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Here's the same way Paul is, I think, telling them to stand firm. It's in this same, this same vein that Peter speaks here. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything, 2 Peter 1.3, has given us how much? Everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us. You see that idea again? Called us by His own glory and goodness. God did this for Himself to call us. But then He has, he has spoken to us, verse 4, through these, He has given us His very great And precious, what? Promises. So that through them, that is through the promises of God, 
You may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then on down through there, he tells them about their ethics, about their, their, uh, their, their morality and their faith and their trust. He tells build upon these things. Add these things to your life. Grow in your walk with the Lord. You see, in the resolutions of the world, still often done within the context of a false view of God, the focus again is upon my performance and God blessing me, the gods through my completion or lack of the resolutions that I've made. But in the gospel, we're to focus upon the resolution of God for his own goodness and glory. He has been resolved to save me and to change me to be like Jesus. To participate, it says, in the divine. That is to be transformed. I'm not going to become a God, but I do become like Jesus in my character. And so God is doing something for my eternal good. Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it forth until the day of completion. What God starts in us, he will carry it forth till he completes it in us. Our focus then should be on what he has done for us, what he is doing in us, and for us, and what he will ultimately accomplish in us and for us. Now, that does not mean that I don't put any effort into obedience. I do. But I want to obey him now with assurance that I'm not performing for him, but I'm doing it because I love him, and I'm cooperating with him as I obey him in the full transformation of Don into what God envisions me to be. That is to be like Jesus. And I want to obey him in that vein. I want to follow him in that way. And he says, for that to take place, he's given me everything I need for that through these precious promises of God. And so as we think about our lives, as we stand firm in these promises, you need this year, the framework is what? I understand the gospel, that I have peace with God. Then I began to understand the promises of God And I use those in the process of obeying him to be transformed in my life. I want to ask you, do you really know the promises of God? You can buy books that go through the promises of God. But I want to challenge you in 2017 as you read your Bible. And I hope that you will take time to read, hopefully through your whole Bible again this year. To begin to note, write down, make cards. Put them on your notepad, on your iPad, whatever. Save them in the cloud. I don't care. Just save them. Know them. Understand and remember the promises of God to you. Oh, man. Think about so many of them. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. He's able to present us faultless before his throne. All things that I go through this year will work together for my good. No matter what it is. For my eternal good. We can see this idea brought together for us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, where Paul puts it this way. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. So he points to the end. This is after the Antichrist. When, all the, uh, when Christ comes back, there's the new heaven and new earth. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. This world is not getting better right now. But in keeping with his what? 
promise. We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You know, at Christmas, people get all sorts of gadgets. Anybody get a new phone for Christmas? I see your hand. Well, admit it. Anybody get a new iPad or computer? Some kind of gadget, a Fitbit? And when people get these things, smart TVs, some people, they'll explore every feature of the thing to get the full benefit. They can tell you everything that it will do. Well, friend, you and I ought to be more intent on exploring every feature of what God has told us, what God has promised us, and begin to live out of that and understand who we are, what we have in Jesus. And if we can live in that way, we can have such a wonderful, wonderful life, not just in a given year, but every day. Those who don't live that way will be unstable. Jesus said that the man who builds his life upon the rock of what? His word puts it into practice, this will be the person that stands up to the storm that comes in life. So, we as Christians, as we enter into this year in our framework, we need to be people who grow in our understanding of the Lord's promises. And then finally and quickly, we as believers need to learn to live with an eye toward eternity. Go back to our passage, and we'll now track along in verses 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2. Then he closes with a sort of a blessing. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us, notice the gift, eternal encouragement and good hope. That's eternal hope, eternal encouragement. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We need to live with an eye toward eternity. You know, the beginning of the calendar year is a good time to be reminded then of these things that we do not have to reinvent the wheel. So as people who belong to God through Jesus, we can rest in the unshakableness of our salvation. We can build ourselves up, gain confidence, and persevere by resting in and trusting in the promises of His faithfulness to us and His transformation of us, His constant work. And we can live with an eye toward eternity with confidence in the future. So in all of our work, notice he says that we're encouraged in every good deed and word. In all of our work and in all of our words, we can be at peace in knowing that we will be ro- they'll all be rolled up into a glorious, eternal future for me. You see, while the world, apart from Christ, has no real foundation upon which to build, upon which to live, we, on the other hand, can quietly go about our work and our lives even in the face of the coming Antichrist, even in the face of whatever problems we face over the next 12 months, we can do so with assurance. We know who we belong to. We know who we are. We know where we're going. And we know that no power can alter that. And before I close, I want to say this. Perhaps some of you in here need to hear. And perhaps out there who listen to us on the web. This truth that I'm talking about today applies only to Christians. That is, people who genuinely have met Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. In our culture, there seems to be this creeping universalism that everybody's going to die and we're all going to go to heaven. He or she dies, they become an angel, they're in heaven. Friend, listen, everybody does not go to heaven. If we say that everybody goes to heaven, then we must call Jesus a liar Because Jesus said, not everybody goes to heaven. He said, the gate is narrow. But I hear this idea with people in our culture. 
I've made my resolutions, I'm doing the best I can, I make my share of mistakes, but in the end I die and I go to heaven. I hear this all the time, I read, you know, things about somebody died in our community. They've given no evidence of ever knowing Jesus, any love for Christ, His Word, the understanding of salvation, but they're in heaven. We hear it all the time. Uh, just the other day, George Michael, the uh, performer, pop idol, he died at the age of 53. That's younger than me. And there's an article about George Michael's faith and religious beliefs. And uh, George Michael, like some Christians, he hated conservative Christians. He gave away a lot of money, did some good things. Uh, some Christians, or people who say they were Christians, I think treated him wrongly according to him. But if you think about this man's life, he showed no evidence of a person who really knew Jesus. No allegiance to Jesus, no allegiance to biblical morality. And I'm sad that he died. I'm sad for the way he died. But when he died, and at the end of this article the other day, you read things like this from Boy George, who used to be a star. He says, I'm thinking of that George Michael's family, friends, and fans right now. He was so loved. I hope he knew it because the sadness today is beyond words. Devastating. What a beautiful voice he had. And his music will live on as a testament to his talent. Can't believe he is gone. I hope the Buddha will hold him in his arms. Well, if that's true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. Buddha is not God. And Buddha cannot save you. Rob Lowe had the pleasure of knowing George Michael in the 80s. Voice of an angel. Now he can sing for them. Don't know his heart. Maybe he had a deathbed conversion. But according to the New Testament, that is not true. Or we read on from M.C. Hammer. Stunned George Michael, a talented and gentle soul. May you rest in God's love and peace. Well, we would hope that that would have been true. But George Michael seemed to have antagonism toward the gospel. And as sobering as a reality as it is, and as sad as it is to say, I take no joy in saying this. Jesus said the gate is narrow, the way is narrow, the gate is small that leads to life. And it is only through Him. And so it's only true for Christians that we have this standing with God, that we're growing to be like Jesus, and that we have an eternal life that is fixed and sure for us. And if you're not a Christian in here today, I just want to encourage you, listen, encourage you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Trust Him and receive Him as He's calling in your heart today. You can call on Him right where you are, sitting where you are. I've had people sitting in the pew before when I've taught like this. They call on Jesus even as we're singing to be their Savior, their Lord, to come into their life. Have you done that? Then I would say to some of you who are Christians, you know, I see here a lot of Christians live sort of an eclectic type of spiritual life that you need to move beyond. Understand what we're talking about today in the gospel. I still hear Christians talking about, you know, using, reading the horoscope. I put a thing on Facebook the other day. Somebody shared it had each month. I'm a Leo kind of thing. Now beside it, Leo, the stars have absolutely no effect on your life. Had it for every month. And that is true. We don't live by fate. We live by faith. We're under the hand of a sovereign God who's given himself to us. You need to move beyond that. These ideas of fate. 
karma. And I know sometimes people use the word karma just in passing and joking. I avoid it just out of a spiritual discipline that I, I hate the worldview because it's not true. All such foolishness and paganism needs to die in us. And we need to embrace the full framework of Christian truth. And if we'll do so, I promise you that you'll begin to find more and more peace and joy and stability in your life. Give yourself to that in 2017 and the promises of God. And then finally, make this year a year of witness. Seek to reproduce in others what you've come to see and understand in yourself and the gospel. We live in a culture that's hungry for spiritual messages. It says in this article about George Michael, he wanted to have conversations all the time about God, about spiritual matters. There are a lot of people like that, and they're all confused. They don't know how any of this fits together about the uniqueness of the gospel, the gift of God. You and I are to be the ambassadors for Jesus. And so why don't we this year be that stabilizing voice of the truth in a troubled world? Make that your commitment to share this core message we've talked about today with those who need to know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Would you stand with me as we prepare to sing without him? I could do nothing. I would be nothing. I encourage you to respond as God so leads you today. Thank you, Lord, for giving us great and precious promises, for calling us and giving us eternal life. For, Lord, uh, an eternal hope and assurance that uh, everything that we face is rolled up into a glorious future for us. Help us to live out of the full, bold framework of the gospel and not like those around us who do not know God. Bless us now as we sing, accomplish what you want in hearts in Jesus' name, we pray.